Welcome to Off Leash Arts Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. In this podcast, I talk with artists about their creative process, what excites them, ignites them, feeds and inspires them. My guest today is poet Athena Kashyap. Athena grew up in Bangalore and Bombay, India, and moved to the United States when she was 18 to attend Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. From there, she moved to California, where she got an MA in English from UC Davis and an MFA in poetry from San Francisco State. She's the author of two books of poetry, Crossing Black Waters and Sita's Choice. Her work has appeared in a wide range of journals in the US, the UK, and India, and been translated into several languages. She currently teaches English at City College of San Francisco. Before we dive into our conversation, I just want to acknowledge that we are holding this interview over Zoom, and we have experienced some peculiar sounds as we've been getting set up. So if you happen to hear a buzz or a ding or a momentary slowing down of speech, Please think of it as part of the poetry of the moment. So Athena, welcome to Off Leash Arts. Hi Tanya, great to be here. It's great to have you. So we met about 25 years ago? Uh, yes, we did. Yeah, we. I think we, where did we meet? It was at a workshop, wasn't it? Yeah, we met in a writing workshop in San Francisco with playwright Claire Chafee. Mm-hmm. Since then, we've each had two kids, you have two girls, I have two boys, and you moved back to Bangalore, right, for seven years, and then back to San Francisco. Yes. And I moved to Michigan, so I'm really glad that we've managed to keep track of each other. Yes. As a kind of introduction to talking about poetry and about your work, I wanted to invite you to read a short poem of yours from your first collection, Crossing Black Waters, called Where a Poem Lives. Okay. Okay, here we go. Where a poem lives. Sipping tea for an hour or so, you might stumble upon a word that unearths a mountain. Attempt to climb it and it'll slip away. You must observe as you would a pebble. A poem is larger than meaning, more enormous than a question. It opens up a space that cannot be closed. A poem never rests. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you. I thought this poem would be a great jumping off point for talking about poems and about creativity, because it's both about what a poem is and also about the process of writing poems. But before we start talking about poems, I also just want to acknowledge that even though I'm going to ask you questions about your poems and what they mean, I know you can't fully ever explain a poem because if you could, it wouldn't be a poem, (laughs) but I'm going to ask the questions anyway, because it's fun to try to point at something, even if we can't arrive at it. So having said that, what do you mean when you say a poem is larger than meaning and more enormous than a question? Um, I think what I meant at that time is uh, when you try to write a poem based on something you want to convey then uh, it reduces the poem. It becomes too didactic. I have fallen into that trap sometimes. I have so many ideas and I have to consciously stay away from that trap. Because you have to kind of be open to letting a a poem sort of awaken your senses in a way. So uh, rather than having something in mind and then trying to convey it, let the poem sort of emerge within you. Does that make Mm. sense? 
Yeah, when I read larger than a question, I was sort of wondering whether you sometimes start with a question, sort of writing into it, and then the poem grows beyond the question. Uh, yes, a good poem should. Like you can have you can have a sort of wonder, like even more than a question is a, is a, is a wonder, and you kind of let yourself wander in that wonder. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then pick up certain associations here and there but the main thing it should come from the wonder and the wandering rather than a kind of didacticism mm. I'm also curious about the phrase where you say you must observe as you would a pebble why a pebble I think what I meant by that is looking at the details like if I'm observing and and wandering um, you need to pick up on small details and let yourself stop there to kind of ponder. So the smallness of the pebble interested me. Hmm. You also wrote about the nature of poetry in your poem towards the end of the book called Breath, Ocean, Starbursts. I loved that. In the first section, you said, they are alive, I tell you, these words sprouting from the page. And it had this kind of uneven spacing that suggests motion and restlessness. Tell me more about how words are alive. What does that mean to you? I think I was experimenting with just giving each word the space it needed to become its own poem in a sense, right? So like sprouting. And uh, so I wanted to, to just use space to, to give life and to kind of germinate each word. It made me also think about language as a living thing in that language is always changing and its meaning is always changing. So something we write today will be understood differently at another time. Mm -hmm. yeah. I love that sense of motion in your work. Another place where I really felt that vividness was the poems in the first book about the holidays of Holi and Diwali. You really mm -hmm. managed to evoke that kind of dizzying ecstasy and the poem holy hey you ended with the words go ahead swallow tomorrow and then an m dash right the long mm -hmm. extended dash so what were you going for was it like an intake of breath at the end i was curious about that um yes like swallowing everything i was inspired by emily dickinson's use of the m dash of course oh, okay yeah but it's just uh what's to come you know like tomorrow is being swallowed like it's not even there like the next word is being swallowed it's a kind of all-encompassing swallowing i guess <laughs> i'm not sure whatever you want to make of it <laughs> so. Uh <-huh. laughs> so let's talk about your writing process what does that look like? And maybe you can address how it's changed since you had kids and also how it's changed since we've been in quarantine. Well, I'm not a very good journal keeper. And I think that's part of my problem because I have to then, you know, think about something and then kind of hold it in my mind and let the, the, the thoughts kind of uh, come together. Oftentimes, it's just kind of letting myself be in a moment or a mood and, and catching um, like a phrase or uh, an image 
And then letting myself ride with that a little bit. I find that when I'm in writing conferences and things like that, that pressure is a terrible one. And uh, that anxiety is awful. And I don't think I would put myself through it again. But it almost forces you to jumpstart that process. I'm not a very disciplined writer. Uh, but when I have a deadline, so I'm working on some short stories. And if I have a deadline, I, I push myself and then get so immersed in it that I let it come to fruition. But it's very difficult with uh, kids in the house. And uh, I'm an all or nothing person. So I find it very difficult to be a mom and a, and a teacher and uh, someone keeping the house and writing. So I either go into periods where I'm writing a lot. And then doing little less. I have that same issue. I can generate raw material on a day-to-day basis. But if I really want to focus in on a larger project, I have to go away for a few days and immerse myself, especially since having kids. Wow. But uh, do you have a regular time in your day that you try to sit down and write? I like to write in the mornings. So um, I'm a very early morning person. So sometimes I will get up at four or five when I'm in this mode of like, oh, I have to do this. Like, oh, I have to turn this in. Mm-hmm. And I will write then. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as I said, it's not a daily thing. It's when I am put a lot of pressure to get something done. Mm-hmm. Like I have a, a goal now to get my short story collection completed in the next few months. So I'm really pushing myself. So I will get up at four and then work on it. But I've heard and I believe it's true that you can only be inspired and write for short periods. But um, what you can do at other times is revise, like look over your writing, revise, and then write for those short bursts. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I feel like everybody's process is so different. I noticed that in an interview you did with Forum, the City College of San Francisco magazine, you advise student poets not to write when they're not inspired. And that was interesting to me because it's actually the opposite advice from what I tell my students and what some of my writing teachers taught me. I I used to study with the novelist Jonathan Lethem, and he said, you show up and the muse will keep the appointment. So I usually tell people that if they show up regularly, eventually they can expect to be met. But I'm curious to hear more about your views on that. Yeah, I mean, I've written a lot of uninspired prose uh, and poetry, and I feel that that could just be avoided. I don't think uh, uh, I I don't think you can meet the muse by just uh, you know, like when you're not inspired at all. Uh, like I think if you keep a, a habitual practice, maybe the muse will show up at that time. But often I have, you know, it's maybe that's why I'm not such a regular writer. I have to be moved by something. But writing when you're not inspired can, I think, really dull you in a way. But, mm-hmm. So maybe you can start off. I, I, what I find really helpful is what, what you do in your workshops is just free writing. Don't, don't go into a plot. And if you're not inspired, take a different approach. That's what I'm finding is helping me with my prose is, is to go and uh, do some free writes uh, and totally like unleash yourself in, in, that, uh, in that area and then come back because you might not be inspired to go back to the spot where you left off. So you, you take it, you know, like, uh, for example, I've been working on a short story 
and I'm just not getting anywhere. So I can just do a free write uh, with a different POV or a different setting and let it be a free write and uh, then use that material. And, and I, I think in those cases, the muse will come. But if you're trying to go back to the same page you left off and, and take off from that and write, it doesn't always happen. Mm. So, you know, maybe like poetry too, like all writing is, is a, like, like a big smash, like what do they call score board, where you're taking different things. Oh, uh, smorgasbord. Smorgasbord, yes. So you're taking different pieces of inspired writing and kind of bringing them together. That's what I meant, like don't write when you're not inspired. So like don't go back to that page number and say, okay, I'm going to write five pages. If you're not uh-huh. inspired, go do your free writes. Unleash yourself in other ways. And then writing can be a kind of pulling together. I mean, poetry is for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, you have images and then you pull them all together. But I'm thinking all writing seems to be like that. Like, you know, where you don't really need to go in the plot line. Like you can have some beautiful scenes and you put them all together, you know? Yeah, um, Vienna Tang, who I interviewed, who's a singer-songwriter, she said that when she's stuck, she'll go and listen to another songwriter that she admires for a while. And then she'll give herself a challenge of writing a song in their style. And that'll oh, sort of nice. end her to her own ideas. I think that's that's a great way too, is get immersed in somebody else's thing and then be so inspired. And I think the main thing is getting out of your ego because you know your ego kind of restricts you and forces your writing in a very uninspired way. Yeah, getting rid of the like, I'm going to write something great, yes. definitely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and allowing whatever it is to come through you. Yeah, yeah. There is something almost mystical about it, right? Like the word inspiration, you know, you're, you're breathing in, right? That's where it comes from. It's almost like you're, you're breathing something in rather than it's coming out of you. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's why language is really interesting because, you know, humans created it by having an idea about a word. Uh, and then I, mm-hmm. as poets, especially more, even more so than, than fiction writers, revisit that elementary stage where words are being created. Yeah, that's such a cool notion. So I wanted to move on to talking more specifically about the collections. Um, Would you read uh, the first poem from Crossing Black Waters, the, the poem called Crossing Black Waters? Okay. Crossing Black Waters. Once she stepped outside, her skin dissolved. She struggled to stay afloat, but years distanced her from the caress of the Ganges that once swept her plains, hum of her hidden Himalayan caves, and she grew weak. Yet, when she was about to drown, webs of seed, teeth, and hair unraveled to release her, let her float away guided by loose, unkempt stars. Mm, That's so beautiful. Such powerful, evocative imagery. I noticed that some of the images, the webs, the floating, they return in various ways throughout the collection. Mm -hmm. Like in the poem Knots, at one point you write, in America, I'm so free, I float away. 
And later in that poem, you write webs of gratitude entwine us and snare us. So can you talk a bit about that dichotomy, which I feel like is really interwoven into the whole collection where on the one hand, she, the she in this poem is almost drowned by this web. But on the other hand, when she's released, she's she's floating away. She's almost lost, right? Untethered. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, talk about that tension between those two, if you can. I think, I mean, it's this idea of America and immigrants, right? Like there's a certain freedom of doing what you want to do and growing as a person and your individuality. In a sense, you're losing all of these bonds, but then I feel like you can't really ever lose those knots. Those are so powerful. I've known immigrants where the knots actually grow tighter because they're mental knots and the moors have been cut off. And I think that's the quandary that immigrants face, especially those in the earlier generations who couldn't go back. I think they just became very knotted in memory and it gets torturous for many people, even though they're completely free to develop their individuality. And so I think uh, it's an interesting um, dynamism that a lot of immigrants face. And I think everyone is an immigrant today, actually, with the world being what it is. Uh, maybe COVID mm -hmm. will change that. But, you know, you moved to Michigan and then you moved so many mm -hmm. different places. And uh, we all leave mm -hmm. home and it becomes a metaphor for all of us, like a very strong one. And it takes on a very different meaning for all of us because we're not deepening those that memory. The memory just stays as a knot. And I think it's true for so many of us urban dwellers who've left home, you know, and moved to different places. It's wonderful with the freedom, but then you're dealing with these mental knots and the loss, but also exulting and being able to do whatever you want to do. Yeah, I think the knot is a really beautiful image. Like there's some part of you that's this fixed, tangled thing that will never be completely free. And that's good and bad, right? Like we want to remain tethered. We don't want to be totally untethered. And yet we do. <laughs> yes. Especially as parents, we know that. I mean, it's so amazing being a parent. But then, you know, especially when you want to do your own thing and write, it's very difficult to do both. And you need to carve out your time. Yeah. Um, I want to turn our attention now to your second book, Sita's Choice, which is focused on the experience of women in India. And in a broader way, it opens into the experience of women everywhere. It's such a rich collection and such a multiplicity of experiences from these deliciously embodied poems that evoke women's sexuality in visceral ways to poems that take on the experience of motherhood and its exhaustion and its joy, and others that deal with the devastating abuse that some women in India encounter, like a woman being burned to death by her in-laws. So it really has a wide range of experience. I wanted to ask you to read the poem called Dear Sita, and then I'd like to talk a bit about who Sita is and how that relates to this collection. Okay, thanks. Dear Sita, O daughter of the earth, found in a furrow, embraced by folds of your mother's skin, you never forgot. Did you immolate yourself in mud to birth flowers and fruit, morsels of your flesh for your unborn children to savor, remember your sacrifice? Or 
Done with being dismissed, stolen, and won, did you choose to leave Ram to return to your mother's house, earth, and your true passion, the land, to rebirth forests, rewrite stories, reclaiming body, seed, and soil? Mm, wow, such a powerful poem. So can you sort of summarize who Sita is and why you chose to name the collection after her? So Sita is the heroine of the Ramayana, right? And she is actually one of the most uh, revered um, kind of goddess figures in India. She's Ram's wife. She's an enormously important person but she never says a word almost in most of the, the epic, except for the last few lines where she finally leaves Ram. She has very, very few lines in the entire epic, at least the Valmiki version. There are many versions of the Ramayan. So you have a very silent heroine. And I kind of saw her in the same light as many of the wives and mothers that I knew and grew up with in India. Some amazing mothers. So Sita is considered one of the most amazing mothers. She brought up her two boys in the forest, you know, all by herself with these sages. So she's considered the goddess of, uh, of suffering, but an extreme sacrifice in a sense that, you know, it's a little discouraging. Because maybe it's kind of telling all mothers that that's the state you need to be in in order to be like this amazing mom. It's really sad to her kind of situation uh, with Ram. Ram is subject to his own people's wishes because he apparently loved Sita, but his duty to his people came first. So I wanted to kind of show how Sita is still, you know, that we see Sita and so many of us uh, in India and uh, around the world as mothers, all these expectations and, and what a new world would look like. So it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that Sita's mother was the earth and she went back to the earth. So I was kind of playing with the idea. So she goes back to the earth, uh, to her mother. And mm. I was envisioning this new world order where it begins with the earth again, rather than kind of, uh, like a patriarchal relationship. Yeah, I thought it was great that you called it Sita's choice because as you wrote in the introduction, it's like she finally does make a choice, right? So she's yes. passive throughout the whole thing until she says no to him and returns to the earth. And that's that's very powerful, I think. Yeah, I struggled with the title a little bit, but then I, I wanted to show her in a time when she did have a sense of empowerment. And she finally said, no, I'm going back, you know, and start off with that. Yeah. As I said, she's the embodiment of motherhood. And I've met women in India who just said that they've suffered a lot in their lives. But when they think of Sita suffering, they know that they just can't compare because this woman lost everything. She brought up her kids in the forest, you know, so that gives them a lot of solace. Yeah, they draw solace from the idea of her suffering. But I like how by focusing on her choice, you flip the script from emphasizing her suffering to emphasizing her empowerment, as you said. Yes. So yeah, I think that's where it's interesting. Like she doesn't just say, okay, I'm going to suffer and suffer in silence. But in the end, she makes that choice. 
it's also uh, timely because her kids have grown up. Mm. I mean, duty is such a powerful thing in Hinduism, right? Her duty to her kids is so strong that the choice doesn't even come up until they are grown mm. up and can live without her. So. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So you you separated the book into three sections called body, seed, and soil. What do those different section titles signify? Well, one is the physical body, right? Women's desire, women's repression and desire, like the physical body. And I focused on those aspects and also how women are maligned because they're female, the female genocide. And so I... I focused on all the physical embodiments of being a woman in the body section and in the seed section is about motherhood and uh, babies. And I I wrote one of the longer poems there when Ishika was born. But, Mm -hmm. you know, immense joy. And I mean, I've uh, since read that there's this huge hormonal rushes that women get, you know, when they're pregnant. I mean, I had these huge uh, feelings of nurturing and and so I wanted to capture that all, in, and I did with those uh, initial little poems, and that's what made it into the seed section. And that is uh, relevant to Sita because she was a mother. You know, as I said, she embodied motherhood. So it was really important part of being as a woman. Mm-hmm. Though, I mean, I would argue not, not everything, right? Because women are making different choices today. Absolutely. And, and the soil bit is the the environment, you know, the fact that she was born of the earth and she goes back to the earth. My first book too, I, you know, the environment is a nagging concern of mine. And mm-hmm. it was important to kind of go back to that. So the soil bit deals with animals and, and, and uh, the animal world and also the larger physical world. But then uh, I end with Leela, who lived with us. And she was a farmer. She came to uh, live in our house and uh, you know, take care of our children. I was really inspired and saw her as a kind of this equivalent to the Sita figure and all the suffering she had or others like her who've left their homes to work for other people. I ended with that whole series because I felt it wrapped up the whole book. She, uh, she was this real modern day Sita, though I have different Sitas all over the book. You ended with an image of her returning to the farm. Did she actually do that or was that more of a dream for her? No, she actually did go back, but then she came back to work for us. And this was during the seven years that you were in Bangalore. She was working with you. And did she come to the city because she wasn't making enough income on the farm? She came because her husband was a cook in our house. She's a very proud person. Like in India, there's a big subservience kind of thing. And she, you know, she treats people like equals, which is, you know, what I like in America, too. In the U.S., the idea of having a cook in your home seems really exotic, but that's pretty common in India, huh? Yeah, it is, because of this huge migrant populations leaving the villages. So uh, India is still primarily a farming country, though I think current government might wants to change that. And, you know, like America moved on from its farming economy, like in the 30s or 40s or earlier than that. But India is primarily a farming economy. But a lot of land is so bifurcated as it passes through the generations that uh, many people can't make a living with small Mm. patches of land. So there's a huge exodus from villages. Mm. So each of these two books sort of circles around a theme. And in my writing workshops, I talk a lot 
about our obsessions as writers, how we have a tendency to just turn the soil over and over on an idea or a theme. And as you turn it, it gets richer and more complex. So I'm just wondering if there's a new theme that you're circling now that could lead to another poetry collection down the road. You know, I'm trying to keep myself from being obsessed because uh, writing books with themes take too much time because you're trying to connect the dots. And in one way, it helps you see, oh, I could write a poem about that. But then it's too forced. Uh, I mean, great poets are able to do it. I'm not there yet. But it, it really, you know, like, oh, I have to write. Yeah, I can write a poem about that missing link. So I'm trying to stay away from that. I've started working on several poems, but I've put that on hold and I'm trying to be a little more playful about it. It's actually, uh, what happens is when I pull up big poems from collections, like I had a big poem on on the theatrical dances. Mm. And uh, so the focus of the next book is going to be about like art. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, 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 I don't get a focus. <laughs> I just... I don't know what it is. I think I just, uh, like, I, I, I see certain connections and then I want to weave the whole book around. But it, it does constrain you. So I'm, I'm hoping not to be too constrained. But, but I'm, I'm going to get my, my short story collection done way before then, this summer. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, I look forward to seeing it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Athena. This has been lovely. Yeah, this is really fun. Thank you for, you know, you're so... You do it so thoroughly. It's it's a really impressive and a joy. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of Off Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. Please tune in again next time when I'll be interviewing playwright, performer, and visual artist Herbert Siguenza of the performance group Culture Clash. Until then, take good care and stay off leash. <laughs>